Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, October 11th. We begin with a look at provincial politics, specifically Danielle Smith being sworn in as the 19th Premier of Alberta. What does this mean for the party and for Alberta? We discuss with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. While campaigning for the UCP leadership, Danielle Smith pledged to hire a new CEO of AHS and replace the entire board. Can she do this and would it actually help the collapsing system? We tackle the topic with Lorian Hardcastle, professor in the Faculty of Law and Cummings School of Medicine at the U of C. Then, with the recession looming, how prepared is Canada for a rise in unemployment and an increase in EI applications? We discuss the findings of a new report on EI with Parisa Masbubi, Senior Policy Analyst from the C.D. Howe Institute. And finally, does Halloween cost more than Christmas in your house? We look at the price tag of the holiday with Taz Rajan from Bromwich and Smith and get some tips on how you can still have a spectacular Halloween without breaking the bank. Last week, Alberta's United Conservative Party members chose Danielle Smith as their new leader. She will, in fact, be sworn in today. But to talk about those election results and what's next for the province of Alberta, we're joined this morning by Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block, Mercedes Stevenson. Hi, Mercedes. Hey, how are you? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving weekend. Did you? I did, thank you. Did you? Good. Yeah, it was fantastic. Good, good. Excellent. Uh, Let's talk about the show from this week because uh, you spoke with outgoing Premier Jason Kenney and incoming Premier Danielle Smith. So, you know, I thought it was interesting that Jason Kenney talked about his concern over conservatism. Did you ask him what he meant by that? So he was talking about um, what he called at times the right-wing outrage machine. Um, He said that he found it difficult at times during his tenure um, to communicate logic and facts to certain people and that he thought that those people may basically be unreachable. He's worried that things like logic and rationality are going uh, and that it's no longer about a policy decision. It's about conspiracy theories. It's about things simply aren't true. Um, He gave an answer to a question I asked him directly about whether he thought uh, a Danielle Smith-led UCP could win a provincial election without naming Danielle Smith. He basically said that anyone who campaigns on recriminations about COVID and campaigned along with QAnon, quote unquote, Mm. um, probably didn't deserve to govern the province, essentially, which is pretty strong warning from him. Um, And and certainly uh, it was interesting to me that he said he felt Pierre Polyev was focusing on pocketbook issues because Pierre Polyev was also accused during his campaign uh, of of sort of playing footsie with certain controversial elements, um, and Smith did as well. Now, Smith was a, a lot more overt, and it was it was a lot more frequent with her. Um, but Jason Kenney wasn't mincing his words on his concerns about the long term effects of that for the Conservative Party of Canada. And of the UCP as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you also had the chance to ask him about his future. A lot of people are wondering what is next for somebody like Jason Kenney, who's been in the public eye for so long. What, what did he tell you? He wouldn't tell us what he has planned next, other than he's going to take a bit of a rest after 25 years in elected politics. Um, and, and a remarkable 25 years for him. I mean, he's going out on a pretty sour note. But he spent uh, 
all of this time, never once being defeated in an election. He was pushed out by his own party, even though he technically won the leadership vote. Uh, but he's someone who's got a lot of experience. Um, and some folks were speculating, is he going to make a return to Ottawa? He says he's done with elected politics in terms of running, but that you know he may still have some degree of involvement somewhere. Um, that's not uncommon for ex you know high level politicians to chair campaigns, that sort of thing. We've seen it with John Baird federally. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. We didn't get an exact uh, an exact uh, answer mm-hmm. on it, but he, he didn't say, oh, I'm coming to Ottawa to become, you know, uh, a member of the opposition, or I want to run with Pierre Polyev if he wins to become federal cabinet minister again. So uh, I think that you're probably going to see some interesting public presence from Jason Kenney and, and him weighing in, um, but not anymore, uh, at least at this point, having his name on the ballot, as we saw with Danielle Smith, uh, for some of these political animals, is very difficult to ever completely with politics. Funny, a politician that didn't give you a straight answer. How weird. Uh, let's move on to this one because the, the overarching theme of the election in Alberta, you know, choosing Danielle as the leader and ultimately the premier, it, it was supposed to be all about unity. So what does it say about unity in the party if, in fact, it took six ballots for Danielle to get the majority? Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I thought that was really interesting uh, because a lot of folks thought she might take it on her first ballot when it took, uh, by the way, it's all six ballots. Like, couldn't have been further ballots likely that that was sort of the maximum um and she won with you know over 50 percent but it wasn't the landslide that some folks thought that it was going to be and that means she has work to do inside that party that means people who told her they were going to vote for her either didn't send their vote in and show up or they signed up with her but then voted for somebody else Um, and she's going to have to worry about that But it's not just those votes, right, because those are people, many of whom had never voted before UCP, who were signed up for the race. Her far bigger challenge is a conservative caucus. Uh, You know, she has folks in that caucus who have said that her Sovereignty Act is a fairy tale, uh, that it it, it poses significant constitutional problems. How do you win those over? So she's saying we're unified and everything is great and there's room for everyone at the table. Uh, But there's a pretty radical difference between we need to table the Alberta Sovereignty Act as soon as legislatively possible and people saying, I think that this act makes no sense and we shouldn't be doing it. And they're actually in the same party. Um, Beyond that, it's Albertans who she has to convince because she was elected by a very, very, very small portion of the Alberta population. And what convinced those people to vote for her will unlikely be the same issues, according to pollsters and and, and from years and years of covering politics, that will cause folks who are not dyed-in-the-wool conservatives um, to vote. So she's going to have to convince Albertans that it should be her who should lead the province. And it's interesting because in she and Rachel Notley, you have two well-known, experienced um, women party leaders who are known quantities to Albertans running against each other uh, to see how this goes. But there are certainly folks I've talked with the UCP who are worried this results in an NDP victory. Others who say, no, she's going to do what Pierre Polyev did and and moderate and start talking about pocketbook issues. Will people remember some of the things she said on the campaign that were controversial and will that raise concerns with them? Uh, We'll have to see. She doesn't have very long to figure out how she's going to campaign because the election, of course, is supposed to be in May. Already seeing some of this, uh, I guess, walk back to a certain extent, Mercedes, uh, Rob Anderson, Smith's campaign chair, and now executive director of her transition team, came out on Saturday and said that, you know, the proposed Sovereignty Act would respect the Supreme Court of Canada's decisions 
Get a reversal of what she was saying going in. So is this is this the soften? Is this the way in? And we're not having, uh, you know, hearing Danielle Smith, uh, Smith say this, but Rob Anderson say it. Is this the path that we, we're taking here? I, I think it's the path they're going to take. Um, and I noticed it when I asked her about it, right? Because she said her number one priority was health care. And I thought, huh, don't remember that being the number one priority during the campaign. I thought that it was the Sovereignty Act, so I asked her about it. And she said, well, you know, kind of like, yeah, yes, the Sovereignty Act. But that's just a thing in the legislature, basically. Health care is my number one priority. I thought, uh-huh there's the pivot starting to happen Mm -hmm. Uh, because lots of Albertans can get behind the idea of telling Ottawa off or making sure uh, that they are maintaining their constitutionally protected uh, rights and limitations as a province. But the Sovereignty Act, as they were proposing it, uh, basically said, "We, we don't have to listen to any federal law. Well, that's not what the Constitution says. And most experts do not think it would stand up to a constitutional challenge. There's a big difference between Alberta asserting its rights as a province as constitutionally prescribed uh, but even some of the things they're promising that are outside the Sovereignty Act you know in her victory speech she promised that um, they would not allow Albertans to be told what can be put in their bodies to travel or work well the province has absolutely no jurisdiction over the federal aviation sector or the border and there was never a provincial mandate saying you can't drive around the province unless you're vaccinated so when i confronted her on that and kind of said like what are you talking about how are you going to get people on planes also that mandate doesn't exist anymore justin trudeau has not talked about bringing it back like you're kind of fighting the past um she kept saying well but the province wouldn't allow it in the province um but didn't try to assert that in fact they did have jurisdiction over those areas but you could sort of see that promise was still there in the speech and then them starting the walk back on well provincial trucking we would allow people to drive unvaccinated well right but that was never really the controversial issue it was people being able to board planes or trains or crossing the borders needing vaccination uh, promising they're going to get alberta's resources out that sounds like a great idea to albertans but the Alberta government has no ability to build a federal pipeline without the consent of the federal government or other provinces on board. For Jason Kenney, a senior member of his staff, told me those kinds of promises sound really good to some folks in Alberta, like the equalization referendum, but have no real constitutional teeth and don't actually work, were one of the things that got him in trouble because people saw promises without action and they got fed up with that. So she could potentially be in the danger that that sort of same thing, if she's making very specific political promises that she doesn't have the power to implement. Oh, Mercedes, we could talk to you about this forever. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Always appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Yes, it was last week. Danielle Smith won the leadership of the Alberta's UCP. With this win, she pledged changes to Alberta's healthcare system, including hiring a new CEO for AHS, Alberta Health Services, replacing the board and hiring an independent organization to provide recommendations on how to decentralize control of healthcare delivery. To talk about it all, we're joined this morning by Lorian Hardcastle, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law and Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Does the Premier have the power to replace the head of AHS and the board as well? So uh, 
the uh, Premier and the government has considerable power over, over AHS, although they are, of course, an arm's length organization. Um, the government has the, holds the purse strings and uh, has, has those powers. And indeed, we've seen turnover of boards and CEOs under uh, previous governments at various times. Would these sorts of replacements at the top end of Lorraine, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, be okay. the kind of changes needed to fix the health care system? Is this what we need to do, just a top-down, uh, uh, sorry, a, a top-level complete cleanse of, of, of the people in those positions? No, I, I don't think that's necessarily a strategy, a good strategy for achieving change. I think you need to look at the board and look at the composition and determine whether they're serving your needs. But the idea that we would just clean house for the sake of cleaning house is problematic uh, because, of course, then you create the risk of instability. Um, to the extent that there are people who have been on the board for a number of years and have that institutional knowledge and have expertise, uh, wiping all of those people out is is just too much instability, particularly at a time when there are such significant challenges in the healthcare system. And Professor, does this kind of all roll back to what happened during COVID with the vaccine policy, et cetera, and staff that were lost? Is is that sort of why it seems the, the new premier is kind of targeting AHS? I think so. And we've seen that both with the new premier and, and even with the previous government where there seemed to be a tendency at times to scapegoat AHS for problems that, that they themselves had contributed to. And so, for example, um, ICU capacity issues were at times attributed to AHS rather than to the fact that no healthcare system could could easily absorb those number of ICU cases that were happening last fall. And that's probably part of the issue, Professor, in that, you know, as the past three years have kind of been the perfect storm, but we knew there were issues before the pandemic. So what actions would you recommend Danielle Smith takes to, to improve the system? If, if for, Put it this way, if you were at the controls, what would you do to make our healthcare system more robust? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think you, you need really a, a bottom-up approach. A lot of the problems that we have are human resource problems on the front lines. And so I think that recruitment and retention strategies have to be top of mind. Um, I think certainly there's efficiencies to be found in AHS at some of those middle middle management uh, type levels. But um, any change that's too aggressive risks destabilizing the system. And that's really what we saw under Premier Klein many years ago, that the uh, fast pace of change and the aggressive cuts um, really caused problems in the healthcare system that took many years to recover from. As a professor in the Faculty of Law, your thoughts as well on, uh, you know, potentially Alberta bringing in its own police force, what that might look like in Alberta. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, my, my main area that, that I focus on is, is health law. Um, but certainly, I think that uh, there are, are issues there with respect to uh, efficiency and, and the cost of such a system. And uh, again, it, it seems like that might be something that's being done, not because it's evidence-based, but because uh, trying to send a message around Alberta sovereignty and independence from the federal government. And I, I fear that we're going to see a lot of that kind of ideological rather than evidence-based policy in the, the coming months and potentially years, I suppose, depending how the election goes. 
I'm wondering, you know, health care, obviously a, a, a hot potato when it comes to politics everywhere. People want to, you know, have the best for themselves and their families. I get that. But, you know, with the AHS, is this, does this stand out like a sore thumb across, excuse the medical analogy, across the nation? Or do other provinces have it right? Or are other provinces experiencing the same issues that we're experiencing? Other provinces are, are experiencing some of the same issues. There are human resource challenges across the country. There are surgical uh, backlogs due to COVID across the country. So the, these issues aren't aren't uncommon. Um, but prior to, to COVID, uh, Alberta and AHS were often uh, looked at as uh, doing a, a good job relative to to some other uh, some other places, and now uh, I worry that with wiping out the board and with some of the other changes proposed, we may be slower to recover than some other provinces. Thank you so much for joining the conversation this morning. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Laurie and Hardcastle, associate professor in the Faculty of Law and Cummings School of Medicine at the University of Calgary. According to a recent study from the C.D. Howe Institute, Canada's social assistance programs need to be redesigned to better support unemployed Canadians. The current system is unprepared to handle negative economic shocks like unemployment cycles or recession. To break down the system's flaws and offer up some recommendations, we're joined this morning by Parisa Masbubi, a senior policy analyst with the C.D. Howe Institute. Good morning to you, Parisa. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, Sue and Andy. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about uh, this study from the C.D. Howe Institute. Can you break down sort of what you were looking for and uh, a little bit of the the results that you found? Sure, absolutely. Um, Basically, the pandemic has shown, uh, has has, uh, uh, discovered uh, the issues we have in the AI, and they are not new. Basically, we were aware of uh, problems with the AI, and now the government is seeking ways basically to modernize uh, the AI program. And in this study, the authors uh, identify several issues with the uh, current design of the program to be able to address the uh, as you mentioned, for example, uh, the biggest issue is that the the, uh, the program is slow uh, to react to this, uh, to economic downturns. For example, when we face pandemic or when we are facing high unemployment in one region, uh, the 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 program is not responsive in in order to. Uh, accommodating many individuals to provide income support for them. And in this study, uh, the authors basically look at three issues, uh, variable entrance requirements that are slow to increase in unemployment and also benefit durations when, for example, when we are in the economic downturn and the the labor market is weak, in, it, it, it would be difficult, uh, more difficult for individuals to find employment, but benefit duration doesn't change automatically with unemployment rate. And also the administrative regions, uh, right now the program uh, is based on 62 uh, regions, which is really difficult, you know, makes it re- difficult to be responsive and also it, it creates uh, some additional burden for uh, administrative burden, I mean. Parisa, you know, it's it's hard to, to compare what we've been through over the past three years. I guess the closest comparison would be the uh, economic downturn that we did see in 2008 to 2009. How do unemployment and EI claims compared to that time period a little over 14 years ago? 
Uh, during the pandemic, we faced basically uh, it, it, it was quite unprecedented. The, the, uh, the change in unemployment was significant, and also it wasn't on in only one region. You know, previously it started for, uh, with some region and then spread uh, over other locations. But the pandemic was shocking. You know, it happened so quickly. It happened, uh, and everyone got affected by the pandemic and the, the restrictions. So many people were forced to lose their jobs so the, uh, yes it was quite uh, different from uh, the previous crisis and it shows how overnight everything can change and we need a we need a program to be able to adjust quickly to these type of change okay so programs like that was recommendations for change then what do we need to do how do we do it better as we move forward so to be able to address the, the non-response, you know, slow responsiveness of the program, the authors of the uh, this study uh, proposed three uh, changes. Uh, first, uh, the first recommendation is to implement uniform or at least more universal entrance requirements. So we know, for example, now based on 62 regions, individuals' uh, decision to be able to accumulate the number of hours to be able to qualify for an EI program change. You know, it varies. It depends on the. An unemployment level, and it depends on 62 regions. Uh, and also, so we are t- the the proposal is to have more uniform. So something like right now, we are we do we have uh, 420 insurable hours uh, as a requirement. So this is something that government can stick to and apply to all regions. Uh, to get a start uh, for uh, to get a started with the program for all unemployed individuals and also uh, chain you know in terms of uh, uh, what can define uh, um, the duration of uh, uh, benefits so it, it should be based on monthly changes in uh, unemployment rate instead of uh, unemployment level and the reason is that to make it more um, responsive to changes because this is the changes in unemployment rate that affects individuals unemployment level um, on its own and across the provinces it's just uh, um, it's going to be only responsive by um, 15% of the time so we are missing uh, 80 85% of the time to be able to be responsive and also reducing the uh, 62 regions to at least uh, three or or maybe at least to 10 regions would be, would be something that uh, help um, program to function better reduce administrative burden these are uh, three reco- uh, re- recommendations from the study Marisa, according to, to your research, to the study, what does the future of EI look like if no changes are made? Is, is it possible we could see a collapse in the EI system if, if we don't take the proper steps? Uh, it's not about the collapse. It's, it's just about, you know, for example, over time, every time uh, that uh, we face a crisis or uh, economic downturn, the, pro- the government needed to uh, come up with a plan, you know, uh, doing pilot projects. And we have many pilot projects 
in place for different regions. So it's just it's going just to help individuals because the, even pilot programs it takes time to implement them. So every time one region is going to be affected by high unemployment rate, government needs to put resources in place to be able to come up with a pilot project. So why why doing that? Why not having a program to be responsive to support individuals? Uh, on time, you know, when when someone loses their job, they need support immediately. It shouldn't take time to respond to unemployment uh, to unemployment and uh, support unemployed individuals. Appreciate it's a discussion we need to have for sure. Thank you so much for your uh, your conversation this morning. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Arisa Mabubi is a CD Howe Institute senior policy analyst. You can get more at cdhow.org. Thanksgiving is in the rear view, but Halloween and Christmas are coming up quickly. So with food, gifts, decorations, the holidays can get expensive. Joining us to break down costs and offer some money-saving ideas, we're joined this morning by Taz Rajan, Community Engagement Partner at Bromwich and Smith. Hi, Taz. Hello. Hey, thanks for joining us. Some big spending occasions coming our way. Do you know, do we spend more at Halloween or at Christmas? (laughs) It's it becomes a blur. It becomes from Halloween all the way to, you know, New Year's, and it just becomes this huge spending season. Mm-hmm. All right. So, you know, it's interesting because <laughs> Halloween, my kids want the $400 decorations. Sue's talking about buying these full-size chocolate bars to give out. It can be pricey, and I know we're 20 days away, but how can we, you know, be conscious of the money we're spending this close to Halloween but still having a great holiday? You know, you're so right, Andy, and like the the ads are out and they're so compelling and they're so tempting. And whether it's the kids or, you know, sometimes it's us adults. I look at those full-size candies and I'm like, yes, I want to be the cool house on the block and I want to be eating those candies as well. So, you know, one of the tips I'm going to give um, has to do actually with your decoration, right? We've seen those big blow-up decorations. and I don't know about you two in your area, but in our community, Halloween's a really big deal. Like even before Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of the homes here getting all set up. You're seeing that as well, right? <laughs> so that can run us a pretty penny. So, you know, consider some DIY decorations. And just because it's DIY doesn't mean it's not going to look fabulous. And you think about things around your house, shovels, garbage bags, a rope, um, you know, some red paint. There's a lot of examples of DIY decorations on Pinterest and YouTube as well. You can get very, very creative and have something very unique that doesn't break the bank. Carrying on in the theme of Halloween, what are some of the scariest money mistakes that we make that we need to learn from and perhaps change moving forward? Yeah, for sure. Well, one is definitely, you know, shopping at those, those the big box stores that are, you know, specifically for Halloween or some of those, um, you know, specialty stores. I know The weekend has just come out with his own Halloween costume, and that's going to set you back, you know, several hundreds of dollars. Whereas, again, if you could be thrifty and crafty. So thrift stores, Value Village has some great stuff. Looking on Marketplace, maybe even looking through your own closet of some of those clothes that maybe you're not wearing anymore that maybe you've kept for a long time that you could you know repurpose that's definitely you know a pitfall to avoid is those big specialty stores that are focused on 
specifically for Halloween or a little bit more niche or a little bit more, you know, boutique-y. That would be one for sure. The other thing is we often wait. I know, you know, Andy, you just said it's 20 days away. We often wait until the week of Halloween to go, "Uh uh-oh, we better grab, you know, something to hand out to the kids. And what are we going to wear? And what's the decoration? And what do you got to take to school? So, you know, if we plan a little bit early, now that Thanksgiving is over, this is a good time to sit down and kind of go, okay, what's the budget we want to put towards Halloween? Let's figure out where are the sales? Where are the deals? What do we have in our home? How are we going to make this work? So avoiding that last minute is another pitfall for sure. Speaking of avoiding the last minute, uh, Taz, I'm going to do some rough calculations. I think we're 75 days away from Christmas. Uh, Not a lot of lead-up time, but enough to maybe not have another credit card Christmas. And I'm speaking for myself here. And me as well. You know, we're we're both preaching to the choir, right? Besides winning the lottery, uh, which we're talking about later in the show today, it's going to be a big one. (laughs) What can we do to lessen that blow today, Taz? You know what, part of it, just what you said, a lot of us kind of go 75 days, I've got a ton of time, there's still Halloween, we'll deal with Christmas when we get to, you know, December, whatever, 15th, right? So, you know, one of the big tips to avoid that credit card debt is to start pre-planning, and now is a really great time to sort of sit down and go, are we hosting dinner this year? How many dinners are we going to host? Are we going to make it potluck? You know, start planning that. The other big one, the other big thing that's coming, you know, I don't know about you, but I've already started getting the emails, right? Prime days and Wayfair Mm -hmm. days and, you know, all of the sales, quote unquote, have started. And they're so tempting and they're so pulling us in. And again, if you've budgeted for it, that can be a great time to save money on the things you had planned to buy. But that can also be a really big trap to spend money on things that, you know, you hadn't allocated a budget for. And the other thing I'm going to say to help with that, you know, not get into debt and have to come and see us in the new year is really remember that the holiday season is about friends and family and about gathering. And let's be really honest and transparent with our friends and family, right? So I know, like, for us, a lot of times, like, ooh, not potluck, we're hosting, we're going to do everything. Maybe this year we say, hey, you know what? How about we get a couple people to bring the appies, the dessert, and, you know, some of the the alcoholic beverages because maybe things are a little tighter. We know that grocery prices are higher. We know Mm -hmm. inflation is hitting us. Interest rates are hitting us. It's a bit of a scary season. So let's make it about gathering and not about digging us further into that hole with debt. Tighter or not, I just like eating other people's food, so I'm all about the potluck. <laughs> yeah. Hey, thanks for joining us. Has some great uh, tips and tricks. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Have a great day. You too, Taz Rajan, community engagement partner at License Insolvency Trustee Bromwich and Smith.